0: It's mid-May 2023, a delightful evening in the West Side Community Garden on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. The Bar Crawl Radio Audio Wagon was set up on the grass in front of the stage in the garden as our neighbors quickly found a chair or wooden perch to listen to the Lou Tabakin Jazz Trio. Tenor saxophone and flute musician Mr. Tabakin has been playing these summer concerts for many years, but more on Lou in a few. I'm Alan Winson with my co host and life partner, Rebecca McKean. And joining us for the pre concert warm up conversation was John Ross, founder of MicroAid International. We had talked before with John about his work in building single family houses in areas hit by disaster. You can see Barcor Radio's number 36 and 111. And we took this opportunity to catch up with Mr. Ross's work with MicroAid International and then asked him what he would do if he saw a stranger being attacked on the street or subway here we go
1: now i'm not kidding goes. i was a better man as a woman with you than i was ever as a man with a woman.
2: That's from Tootsie, no? Yeah. Yes.
1: And, yeah. Oh, hi. Hello. Yes. And that, and that delivery is why
0: John didn't get the part. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. They said, no, John, that's not the line. I couldn't remember.
1: Am I still close, close, close enough to the you mic? You know, it sounds like good, to... but I mean, you could get closer. If you wow. want to... I don't want to get closer. This is where I feel comfortable. I don't want to mess up your... Your podcast, okay. This is good. Now I'm close.
2: Yeah, closed. we don't want you to mess up our podcast either.
1: We're doing the work of genius here, and yeah, exactly. you are doing the work of Jesus. I always thought that. About, I always thought.
3: Jesus. Yeah,
1: he said Jesus. Oh, genius. Jesus. No, lay back. <laughs>
0: we're
1: doing the work of Jesus here. Yes. <laughs> You're right. You were right. See, Jesus was a Jew, and and and. Alan's finally coming around He's to be that. The I'm the I'm the third coming. Maybe you are the the, this, the coming. Yeah, that's right, and we're not going to talk about sex, so forget about that. Oh yeah, well, that the innuendo just went out the window. <laughs> I worry about the first coming. The second one is like you know. Oh my God! Does he make jokes like this all the time? All the time. Oh okay. It's Why? Really this ribald sense of humor I've never seen.
2: It's my cross I have to bear.
1: <laughs> you and Jesus. It's this is the theme today. We should just go with it. What the hell? Oh, boy. Well, Lou Tobacco
0: is getting ready to uh, start his concert in about, I guess in about 30 minutes.
3: Yeah.
0: And uh, we're here with John Ross. This is Barco Radio. We're out here at the Westside Community Garden. It's uh, May... Something. 12th, 11th. No, May no, 21st. May 20th. 20th? May 20th. Okay, May 20th. It's somewhere between May 11th and May 21st. <laughs> um, and we're at the Westside Community Garden. I'm here with my lovely partner, Rebecca McKean, and That's you can hear um, Lou Tabakin getting warmed up in the background. Uh, they're supposed to start in about a half hour, but they're doing sound checks now. We thought we would uh, have a little conversation here with Mr. John Ross, um, who well,
2: we've, we've oh. talked to a few times. Yeah,
0: we're gonna we'll, we'll wait for the sound check to come. Kind of Are you
2: there. sure it's a sound check? like a sign that people are gonna stay away from.
0: I mean, I was thinking, someone goes like, what are you doing? What are you doing down there with all the mics? Right. And then I would say, well, we're doing a podcast. Would you like to talk about that? And then I have a mic set up for them to to do that. But it's surprising how people just ignore podcasters. I yeah. mean, they,
1: they kind of look at you out society your then. You well, know. here especially, it looks like you're the soundboard. Don't really what we should do is stage an attack he's here, a New
2: Yorkers. They don't care. Like, like get
1: like, out there, John. I'll we'll, attack. Uh, we'll do a stage oh, an attack go. and then really see. This would be the. And I'll no.
2: ignore it and we'll see if anybody you know comes
0: to your aid.
1: You can put me in a chokehold, and yeah, right. You know, anything. let's get let's get started.
0: Okay, I think um, Utabakin and his jazz trio have all warmed up. And, oh yeah, he's putting his little mouthpiece on his sax. So we have, we'll, we'll have we have a few minutes here to talk to Mr. John Ross. After successful careers on Wall Street and in Hollywood, he, uh, Mr. Ross founded MicroAid International, a nonprofit for which he travels the globe building homes, replacing tools of livelihood and restoring self-sufficiency for disaster victims in far-flung locales. Does that sound about right?
1: That uh, pretty much sums it up. Okay. Is there anything left for me to talk about?
0: Well, his mission... I have a little more. Oh, great. Is to focus on the victims long after the world's attention has moved on. That's correct.
1: We, we're going to We're yeah, going to have to wait. Yeah. Just like a microwave waits. <laughs> Years after the band stops playing, we go in.
2: There you go. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well done.
0: Just to, Just to finish up my introduction here of John Ross and MicroAid. Uh, this is an organization that looks for small projects with the potential for big impact in hard hit towns and villages.
1: That's correct. And that's, that's who you are. Yes, that is. We, we rebuild permanent houses for disaster survivors around the globe. And um, and that's the distinction really between our organization and, and many of the others which are uh, they go in immediately after the disaster, They're their first responders and then the tent and bottled water people. Uh, we actually go in a year or more after the disaster and find people who are in those temporary tents or temporary situations or maybe still even in the rubble of their, own, of their homes still after a disaster a year or more and we will rebuild their permanent houses so that they can get back to self-sufficiency. What are you working on now? So, micro-aid continues to rebuild houses in um, Nepal since the 2015 earthquake there which destroyed 650,000 homes and there will just be work for us to do there uh, for the foreseeable future. So we have a full-time project manager there, she's uh, working on a project right now, finishing up a house for a disaster survivor family. And before the end of the year, we'll choose another family and start another project there. I will go in January 2024 to Sri Lanka and initiate a new project there. We already worked there in 2010 because of the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004. So there's work to be done there. And uh, Malawi was just hard hit by a cyclone that hit uh, southeastern Africa a few months ago and i happen to have a friend who lives there who is living there temporarily but living there long term temporarily and he asked me if microaid could come and help rebuild houses there and the thing about microaid it's nimble it's quick we we can we're reactive so i will go there in 2024 to assess the situation and see if we can help some families there
2: so why do you go in so many years later after the uh tragedy has occurred?
1: Um, Generally because I like to let the dust settle and we let the other big organizations who do emergency response and who do uh, relief work, to let them do their work and that's when we can go in. It's sort of like a transfer. They're leaving and we're going in. Um, The dust has settled. People have either gotten helped and are okay or they haven't and that's when we can see that about a year later or more two years sometimes or more.
0: Right, right. Before we move away from microaid, aid um, where can we get more information online and
1: how could we contribute to it? That's uh, very nice of you to ask that and um, so of course micro has a website microaidinternational.org and you can see our current projects our past projects Uh, my blog from the field, which a little bit has notes about the cultures and how we work and what we do. So that's kind of fun Uh, on the website. You can dig around in the website. And of course there's a donate button on every page and I, and I encourage the listeners to press that button more than once. And, and
0: we, when we can, we, we throw in 20, $25, if you can throw in more, then please,
1: please do. Um, every 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 dollar helps I, I you know I can emphasize so many of my philosophies but one of them is just because you can't help everyone doesn't mean you can't help someone and just because you can't give more doesn't mean you shouldn't give a little something because we can make that work we can help some some something with that we can do some sort of part of the project with any amount of money and I, I just want to add one more thing because I just Kind of discovers that every
0: dollar that is sent out to you every friggin dollar gets put
1: into these building of these houses i mean it's the overhead is paid someplace else that's true Uh, it was a concept from from the beginning when i created this organization to always be able to tell donors that a hundred percent of their donation goes to local materials and local labor to the projects because the board of directors and i cover all of our overhead costs Great. I, I,
0: I think we have a few minutes to talk about this question that I've been wanting to talk about. Just recently, um, a young man uh, was attacked and killed on the subway um, because he was going a little crazy. Sometimes that happens on the subway. Um, Mr. Neely, and he was killed by Mr. Penny, who was a former Marine, put him in a chokehold and killed him. Um, and the question, and, then, and no one really did anything about it. No one stopped them. So the question is, if you see someone attacked somewhere on the subway, on a bus, on the street, in New York City, would you help? It's a very important question about bystanderism.
2: Well, I would argue, though, that two people did do something. One person yelled at them, and another person videotaped it, which is something in in regards to what was But no
1: one
0: reached over and And said, get off this guy.
1: I just read a pretty detailed article in the New Yorker about this. And there were two people actually holding his arms down and restraining him uh, more. While Penny was choking him. While Penny was choking him, there were two other people actually assisting that uh, situation. And they were not arrested and they don't know who those people were. So this is um, this is an interesting thing, and 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 you mentioned that someone was you know uh, that uh, Jordan Neely was going crazy. He was crazy. He was very well known by the uh, institutional authorities here in New York City. He's been in and out of institutions for a long time. He's had a very very sad uh, life. His mother was killed, I think, in front of him. It's pretty uh, pretty horrible. So. This brings up a lot of questions of our how we handle people with uh, mental disabilities or mental problems, you know, our homeless population. Uh, it, it's a very, very bigger issue than just who uh, overreacted to a guy who didn't have a weapon, who was being aggressive in his talk but never threatened anyone.
0: okay yeah. Um- the question is, would you have gone in? I've been on the subway, and I've seen people go a little berserk and crazy. Uh, they didn't touch me, and basically I just moved away. Right. I didn't put him in a chokehold. Right. 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 Um, but if I were to see Mr. Neely being attacked, back in 1964, there was a woman, Genovese, who was killed, and no one did anything about it. Would I have done anything? I'm not sure I would have. Right. And I wonder, I wonder what you feel, Becky. Would you have done anything?
2: Well, I did once. I did once. Um, there was a man that had was holding another man down. They were both in regular clothes. I didn't know. I had no idea what the circumstances were. But I went over and I was yelling at him to let him go, let him go. Don't you stop, stop hurting him. And he said something that kind of indicated, and I re- realized that he was a police officer and oh. i um, and he it, i didn't see the, the man wasn't being choked i could you know so i, I just kind of left so i don't know well you did something that, i just yelled at him
0: you did something you know it, it it happens though that sometimes people who do intervene that they themselves get hurt right, i mean there's I instances was, of that
2: i was afraid of that you i know. was afraid if he if he w- were actually you know some kind of a, someone in a gang or something that he might turn to hurt me and I was very afraid and I argued with myself about going
1: forward yeah and finally I just and see I, I kind
0: of got angry at you for getting involved because right. I don't want you, you to get remember hurt that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 Um. many many years ago in, in Los Angeles was working in a place called Tom Bergen and I went out to the I was uh, taking a break and I was in the parking lot and a man and a woman have an argument and I yelled and I said you know don't don't hurt her don't hurt her leave her alone and the woman attacked
1: me Interesting. Yeah. Uh, among us right here, we've sort of answered yep. the question for ourselves because I, I would answer it very similarly. I will get involved. If I see someone being choked out, being overly restrained to that, to the extent that his, that it went, it, that Neely thing went on for 15 minutes, we need to get involved. If we see someone who seems to be uh, being overly uh, hurt, it's it's our it's our moral responsibility especially yes. if we think he may be kill, being killed you bring up an interesting idea the the moral duty to do something there is no legal duty no there is no in legal new problem. york
0: city new york state correct. to actually do anything
1: correct about it yeah it's a, it's it's a tough call in some senses you know the guys being restrained now i was a wrestler in high school yeah, I, actually to blow my own horn a little bit i won the the state championship when oh I was a, when I was a That's senior in high school. Very good. Yes. Now wow. you know. Most people know the difference. I could put someone in a in a hold that would would constrain them unli- for an unlimited amount of time, and it would never kill them. The guy who put this guy in a chokehold, chokeholds are famous for killing people. That's what they're used for. He put someone in a chokehold and he held him there for over fifteen minutes. Hence it's called a
2: chokehold. Yes.
0: yes. And he's yes he is a he was a trained, trained marine. Trained
2: to do
1: it.
0: And our son was a trained marine. He was trained on this chokehold. And he tells me that the Marines are told
1: to be very careful about using it, because it's a kill hold. That guy is trained to kill people, and this was a was a, a hold that kills people. And it, so, and, and it killed somebody. And it yeah, did kill somebody. But, you know, but, um, you know you, it, it's an interesting question, and especially in this day and age, when everything... Uh, it seems like a video game. Everyone's inured to reality. You know, someone in a show called, oh, that's, they just saw that 20 minutes ago when they were playing some first-person shooter game on their cell phone. Um, it, sometimes it becomes unreal. And, in, and instead, like Becky said, that uh, people didn't even respond. A lot of people were, or someone was filming it, maybe more people, that's what they do now. They I think know. they think they're at a concert, some kind of entertainment.
2: But uh, maybe they're filming it so that that some kind of justice is done too. I don't, you don't know that their motivation for sure.
1: That's you're absolutely you right. Know,
2: I might not be brave enough to to approach someone who's scary looking and try to stop him physically, but I might you know say stop it. You, sh- you shouldn't do that. And and I'm filming you. Very I'm good point. I'm filming you.
1: Very good point. Absolutely. I, t- I totally agree.
0: So it becomes like what what is the best approach to Stopping someone from being attacked—you do you
1: actually put the hands. Well, that's you, the thing. I think you put your hand on I, Penny and say, "Come off." I wouldn't spot.
2: put myself in danger.
1: No, exactly. I think you do what you can without risking your own life. I mean, or not life. Even your—you know—you don't want to be harmed and and get too deeply involved. So that—that's what happens. And
2: and you know, at the very least, you call 911. You get you know, you find somebody. Yeah. That's in and people did
1: that in the subway. A lot of people were calling 911 throughout it. A number of people con- uh, contacted the conductor. And so those things were happening. but because of the train was moving, it was between stations, there was uh, 10 to 15 minutes where there was no help for this guy. And that's I guess the question of like when does the bystander jump in and say, we have to take these matters into our own hands.
0: I wonder if this incident's going to make any change. Back in 1964, uh, there was a woman, Kitty Genovese, who was um, murdered um, in, near her home, yelling out to her neighbors, and supposedly her neighbors heard and didn't do anything about it. The actual story has changed over the years as to whether people actually heard it. But um, New Yorkers, I think, have gotten a bad rap as being cold and oh yeah there's there's
2: always a some homeless person that's asleep on a bench and it turns out actually he had passed and you know people walk right by and
0: And we walk by these people all the time i've
2: seen people sleeping on benches and i don't go and try to rouse them and right
1: but that's a i mean it's all it's a matter of degree for sure you you know you can't you, can't, you could stop for every homeless person that you see lying on the sidewalk. I mean, I think I passed like four today. Um, so if that's gonna be your mission, you can do that. I'll, I'll, but this question, I mean, so that's a whole other question. But this question is, if you see someone actually being restrained or hurt, what do you do? Um, the next question might be, what's our responsibility when you see anyone in a, 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 who is suffering? You know, do we have, what is our responsibility there?
0: Okay. That's the question here we're asking out at the Westside Community Garden today. I think it's an important question, and uh, we're going to keep thinking about it, this idea of bystandardism. Wow. We're speaking here with John Ross of MicroAid International. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your ideas on this very important question. If someone, if you see someone being attacked, should you get involved? Uh, what, what, What would you do? We're getting ready to listen to Lou Tobacco's Jazz Trio. Uh, we're going to play some of the music from the concert, so uh, that should be fun. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. And now for some samples of the pieces played by the Lou Tobacco Jazz Trio with Boris Kozlov on bass and Jason Tymon on drums. It includes two flute pieces by Tobacco, Garden and Lifetime, and Out of This World a piece he wrote named after the B-flat Tokyo jazz bar he plays at called B-flat, where it's at, a Billy Strayhorn standard, Daydream, and the concert ended with a bunch of tunes by George Gershwin. After that, you can hear parts of an interview I had with Lou Tobacken in his Upper West Side apartment about four years ago. Following is a conversation with Lou Tebakin at his Upper West Side apartment in July 2018. What is your connection with the West Side Community Garden?
4: Well, I guess it's basically Randa.
0: Randa uh, Kirschbaum.
4: Yeah, she. Uh, we had a mutual friend who was a drummer, a great drummer, uh, and a lawyer, <laughs> Pete LaRocca. And she, she was very friendly with Pete. And... So she asked Pete to do it. And Pete said, "No, I don't do trios because they only ha- they can only do a trio. He's, he, Pete's a drummer and he he likes to play in bigger bigger ensembles. Yeah, called. they only have a
0: little space there. Yeah, in but, the you the know, but
4: anyway, he just that's his proclivity. So he said, well, call Luther back and I know he has a trio and it will be great. And Randa called me. Pete told me. I said, "Pete, are you sure she knows who I am?" You know. She said, "Oh yeah, of course she does." And started that. And it was a perfect venue for us. You know, we've I've done it quite a few times. I think I only missed one one of them.
0: You were born in Philadelphia. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where 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 did you grow up in Philly?
4: Oh, I almost grew up in uh, <laughs> South. Philadelphia. <laughs> Have you grown up yet? No, not yet. South <laughs> Philadelphia. Yeah. See, every time I hear our man. Donald say, make America great again. He's referring to the America that I grew up in. I don't know about you. And it wasn't so great. It was not so good. And you know, Philadelphia was, certain parts of Philadelphia were horrible. It was, the great thing about Philadelphia was that there was some great music happening.
0: So where 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 did you listen to music early on? I mean even before you started playing?
4: I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about music. Uh, music wasn't a part of my life. Uh, there's no record player or uh, radio? You know what we
0: had. <laughs> yeah.
4: My grandmother had one of those. Uh, uh, the, wi- the wind up. Yeah. Patro- oh, my God. That you, he, uh, Lou is winding his hand. You wind it, and then you have to put a, a needle in. A really, and weirdly enough, there were a couple records that were were interesting. One of the records was uh, Sonny Stitt record. Another one was uh, uh, Woody Herman's Bijou. Wow. Can you imagine that, in the midst yeah. of all this crap? And yeah. like, so that <laughs> that was it. Uh, when I got older, I got a flute in school.
0: So you started with a flute?
4: Yeah, I got a flute in school, and I didn't even, I wanted to play something. I thought maybe clarinet would be cool, you know? I don't know why. Yeah, well, I had good no man idea, man. I just think something to do. I could only get a flute and this was in grammar school it was in like junior high school uh-huh. and they, the school would let loan you lend you an instrument would they give you lessons unfortunately they gave me they gave you lessons but the teacher <laughs> was totally unqualified and i didn't know the difference so i i'm listening to this idiot and i, I mean and you're, and you're doing what he's sa- telling you to do exactly yeah. and was, i I never had seen anyone play the flute and I played with the flute on my shoulder. Believe <laughs> it or not, so it, it took me years and years to overcome a bad, yeah. you know, beginning. So I tell people, get a good teacher. So what? What? What?
0: Eventually turned you around and took the flute off the shoulder.
4: Well, <laughs> I, I got into high school, and when I was, fif- well, I was fifteen, I, before that I played a little clarinet too. I decided to get a sheep clarinet and started playing a little bit and then i uh got a tenor saxophone and so that opened my ears and opened my mind there was a guy next door we had lived in a row house and he was a little older than me and i kind of admired him because he he, for some reason he acquired a fancy car and he had a record collection and (laughs) he let me listen to some of his his, some stuff that he had cool guy and I said, wow, that's, and in those days jazz was like a co- jazz in the college kind of reality. It was, that was a, a generation of jazz in the college basically. <coughs> so I started to listen to stuff and interesting enough, I, kn- well I, d- I did an interview in Tucson, uh, Brett Primark, he, he interviewed me for two hours, went through my whole history and I started to remember stuff, you know. And I remember the first day I got a tenor saxophone, and I—I I remember what it was. It was a Con 10M. I knew the mouthpiece I had it was a—it was a Brill Hard hard rubber number four, and a reed it was a, that they don't make anymore. And I knew exactly what my sound would be. And but I, you were very young. I was—I was fifteen. And, uh, well, other, other
0: other kids around were doing
4: other things. They weren't yeah, playing yeah, music. Whatever. What was
0: it that turned you on to doing
4: this? Well, I, I, I just wanted to do it, you know, and, and I was attracted to... Uh, Philadelphia was, um, amongst white musicians, uh, Al Cohn was a big hero. So uh, I got a couple records of his. Um, some people, a little older saxophone player, like Frank Tabiri, you know, he, he was... Uh, he became the director of a Woody Herman band a year, few years back. Anyway, he, he said, why don't you try to check out this album? So anyway, I had that sound in my head, and I could after like four hours, I could approximate it. So I had a talent for... For uh, hearing something and then tonal playing tonal it. Tonal, tonal um, I'm kind of tonally oriented, mm-hmm. like sound oriented. Like I really am into the sound. I don't practice a lot of notes, but I try so hard to get a sound that I want to get. The tendency nowadays is, is deals more with uh, velocity than than sound.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: You
0: you eventually went and studied formally.
4: Well, kind of formally. I mean, I was playing the saxophone, clarinet, and flute, basically, and I w- on, on that strength, strength of that, because in, in high school, we did a, we had a, ba- we had a music teacher. Actually, he was a s- substitute, and decided to do a musical, musical show, and and on a bit, kind of my, kind of on the strength of that I got a scholarship and also I played in the orchestra I wasn't very good but I played in the orchestra
0: This is at the uh, Philadelphia Conservatory of Music
4: Yeah right Problem was with that school is it was it was no it was a classical music school and I'm there as a flute major I'm not really that interested in the flute at that time I was just trying to play jazz saxophone so I go out at night and play you know and i didn't i wasn't serious but my last year of my last year i actually wanted with a a teacher that really i liked and who was that his name was his name was murray panitz he he was a first flute with a philadelphia orchestra at the time and he showed me fundamental real fundamental stuff that i could work on my whole life so and do you remember those
0: lessons? Do you?
4: Yeah, I remember the concepts, and uh, I started working on it. And at a certain point, I really got interested in the flute. Uh, so I didn't take a lot of formal studies, but I listened to records. Again, I, I listened to classical records mostly, and I, I tried to get a certain sound that I, a certain certain sounds I was attracted to, and I tried to uh, emulate that.
0: Can you describe what those sounds were? Is there a way of putting it into words?
4: Well, it has to do... I guess you want to describe it. has to do with color. And uh, the flute can be a beautiful instrument, and it can be a powerful instrument. It's not, It doesn't have to be a wimpy little instrument. like li- Most jazz players are not that serious about it. They just replicate what they do on the saxophone on the flute. But
0: But, but it's, it's a different sound, so obviously clearly. Yeah.
4: yeah, obviously it's a different sound. And like, so I... Like you can... Acc- you can, like on any instrument, you can express yourself quite a lot with, you know, one note. If you have a beautiful note, you can, you can say something. So I've I attracted to certain players. I, in Philadelphia there was uh, William Kincaid, and it was Julius Baker in, in New York, and Jean-Pierre Ron Paul. And there was a flute player that used to teach at Yale, the name was Tom Nyfinger. I was attracted to, w- to his sound. I, I really liked his something about his sound. So I-, I Where were you
0: att- hearing these people? Were they on records? Yeah, on records, yeah.
4: Know. Mostly right. on records, you know, and uh, Although I was fortunate enough to attend uh, William Kincaid's f- uh, farewell recital in Philadelphia, which was quite amazing, so anyway, I, I got beginnings of being attracted to the flute. But at the, on the other hand, I was playing the tenor, and I I got into you know normal prog- progression. Sonny Rollins, I really love Sonny Rollins. I still do, and uh, Coltrane. I used to emulate Coltrane, and at a certain point, I said, "Wow, that's pretty stupid." I started. I mean, emulating well, instead to of being play your own. Well, like yeah, of course. I'm 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 listening to other white saxophone players trying to play like Coltrane. Yeah. And I said, "What a stupid! They sound so stupid, and I probably sound just as stupid." I don't think I did actually. I had some little recordings. Mm. that kind of captured the essence of the sound, but I was a method actor. I get on the bandstand and I'm pretending to be somebody I'm not, so that's stupid right there. So then I, I made it a point through the help of a trombone player who had a record collection to to listen to the tradition, so I started checking out the tradition of jazz saxophone. All right. And uh, I, uh, he played a lot of the great players that I had never had much, I never listened to much or at all. He played like Lester Young. I mean, Lester Young is perfection. I mean, so great. And then played Ben Webster. And has a great uh, description of his playing. It's tragic beauty. Ben Webster has something, another thing. It's, it's amazing. And then, you know, Don Bias, I never heard the saxophone play like that well. And and it got to Coleman Hawkins, and it was too difficult for me. I couldn't understand Coleman Hawkins. <laughs> and then years later, the light bulb went off. I said, "Well, that's that's it. That's the source of everything." So I really became inspired by him. But anyway, you, you absorb it. It's like osmosis. You, you know, like you you listen and you you take in the elements that you really are attracted to, and you reject the elements that you're not. Yep. And then. You take all these feelings and, and sounds and whatever, and you put it in a pot and you mix it up, and then all of a sudden you find you, your voice comes out of that.
0: I'm Alan Winston, and you've been listening to this Bar Radio Podcast. Thanks again to Lou Tobackin for sharing some of his musical heritage with me. And you can hear the entirety of this 2018 conversation at barcallradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.